The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, that's on page 848. Mark 12, 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But... Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The word of the Lord. Uh, well, we are still here in Mark chapter 12, and uh, if you remember uh, the, the totality of Mark chapter 12 and even Mark chapter 13 um, is really a, a one-day event in the life of Jesus. It's Tuesday in the, in the final week of the life of Christ, and what we find is that Jesus is still walking and teaching in the temple. Um, if you remember, his first confrontation was with the scribes, uh, the religious leaders, the elders, who came to him, confronted Jesus on his authority. Jesus posed a question. They were unwilling to answer that question. Then last week we looked at Jesus who gave a parable to enforce this idea of what it looks like um, to respond to the kindness and the severity of God. But now here we are, and you see this here even at the beginning of verse 13. It says, and they sent. So the they there in verse 13 are these people who just got sat down by Jesus as he exercised his authority. In Luke's gospel, what you actually find is they sent in this group of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, as spies in order to go in and start following Jesus around in order to trip him up in his words. Because if you remember, and as we'll say here in a little bit, they are consumed with seeing Jesus destroyed. This is how infuriated they are at Christ. They want to see him die. They hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. And so this morning, what we're going to see is that this incident here with these religious leaders, these Pharisees, and these more public group of people, these people called the Herodians, what they're going to do is start off a series of controversies that revolve around questions. And they're going to keep trying to trip Jesus up to give them any sort of reason whatsoever that they can take Jesus and pin him on that cross. And today they're going to come at Jesus by asking a question about taxes. Because there's something that is very volatile in the time of Jesus revolving around taxes. And their hope is to trip Jesus up with his words on this this issue. So that that way they can pin Jesus to the cross as a result of whatever answer he gives. 
And so what we need to do is just uh, have and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. And so let's do that. Let's hit pause. Let's pray. And then we're going to turn our attention to this text before us. Father, what we need is our head and our heart and our hands to align as a result of the time spent in the Word. So open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things from your law. Father, I ask that you would incline our heart to your testimony this morning and not to selfish gain. Father, I ask that you would prepare us to be hands that go out of these doors into a week who would not, men and women, who would not just merely be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Holy Spirit, we're asking for you to come and to fill to move us in such a way to where we would have an experience with you this morning, not as a result of anything I bring to the table, but solely as a result of the sovereign Lord delighting to empower the preaching of his word. So Holy Spirit, come. This is our expectation and our hope this morning. Turn our eyes to our need for Jesus. It's in the name of our resurrected King that we pray. Amen. Think on this question here with me. What should your relationship to the world look like? What should your relationship to the world look like? Or to be maybe a bit more specific, to be a bit more explicit, as a follower of Jesus, if you were here this morning, as a follower of Jesus, what should your relationship to the world look like? If you've been a follower of Jesus for like a nanosecond, you begin to ask these questions. Like, now that I've followed Jesus, like, what does this mean? Like, what are the implications? Like, what music should I listen to or shouldn't listen to? What movie should I watch or not watch? What shows, what shows should I watch or not watch? What places should I go or not go? Like, what conversation should I have or not have? Like, what is right to think? Where should I set my mind? Where? What? How? Why? All these things begin to fall in line because we are people who just typically fall into these categories of life. These are just the mundane categories of life. And there's this inkling in us that whenever King Jesus saves us, that our salvation in Christ alone ought to have an effect on how we interact and relate to the world around us. And so we begin to ask questions. What should my relationship to the world look like, especially as a follower of Jesus? You see, as we turn to our text this morning, it's this very question, the idea concerning a person's relationship to the world around them that is lingering in the air as the Pharisees and the Herodians come and partner together and come at Jesus with a question about paying taxes. As we'll see, they come to Jesus with flattery on their lips, but ultimately the Pharisees and the Herodians that are trying to trap Jesus in his words, they have deceit in their hearts. 
And asking this question, their sole aim is to force Jesus to publicly wrestle with the age-old question, what is our relationship to the world? So when we turn our attention to verse 13, we see these two groups of people drop the question on Jesus. Verse 13, Mark tells us that they, again, that is the religious leaders back at the end of 11, at the beginning of chapter 12, they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so they come to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher, we know you are true. We know you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Therefore, oddly enough, these are true things about Jesus. They don't believe them, but they're speaking better than they know. They're speaking to Jesus saying, Therefore, since these things are true, we've got a question for you. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a simple yes or no question. They're just trying to pin Jesus into a corner, sticking him on the horns of a dilemma. It's like that question, you know, like if you're a buddy, he's just a real jerk, and he comes to you if you're hanging out the office, and he's like, hey, man, are you still beating your wife? Like, it's just a lose-lose question. Like, the implication is you're either going to say yes or no, but you don't want to say yes or no in any of those scenarios because it just traps you and puts you in a place you don't want to be. That's exactly what these guys are doing with Jesus. They're sticking him in a corner and saying, listen, is it okay, is it lawful, is it right for us to obey the government in this moment and pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or should we not? Implication, say yes or no, because whatever you say right now is going to get you into trouble. And so in Jesus' day, what's swirling in the background, the context that gives this question power is the issue of taxes because in Jesus' day, just like in almost every age beyond Jesus' day, the issue of taxes was a hot topic. In Jesus' day, some were strongly for taxes, others were strongly against taxes, prompting many in first century Palestine to wrestle with the tension of how are we meant to exist, especially as Jews, in a place where the Roman government is an impressive government and we are in subjection to people we don't want to be in subjection to. And so the issue is, how are we supposed to live in this world when we're not quite sure that we really want to live in this way to these Roman oppressors that are over us? This was the tension that was in the air, and because this tension was so stinking thick, the Pharisees and the Herodians saw this question as their opportunity to trap Jesus so they could destroy him. If you go back into Mark chapter 3, verse 6, you see the Herodians and the Pharisees first link themselves together whenever Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and the response to the Pharisees and the Herodians is that they come together and say, we want to see this guy dead. We don't like what he's doing. That's all the way back at the beginning of his ministry. So now almost three years later, they finally have gone, we've crafted the thing that's going to finally get rid of this one that's a thorn in our side. And so they start off, as you see there in verse 14, with exaggerated flattery. They come to Jesus with words that are true but they're just trying to butter Jesus up in order to trip him up into getting himself in trouble. 
He's a teacher, they say, one who has no fear of man. That's what it means there when it says, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. That's not because Jesus is just hateful. What he's saying is Jesus has no fear of man. And because he has no fear of man, he teaches the way of God faithfully, even when it's hard to teach the way of God. Sometimes God's truths have a point to them, have an edge to it, doesn't it? And sometimes the fear of man can prohibit us from speaking the truth of something like the gospel. But for Jesus, he never fell into that trap. No fear of man always led Jesus to faithfully teach the way of God. And because these things are true, the Pharisees and the Herodians partner together, come to Jesus and go, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Give us a yes or no answer. In other words, they want Jesus to weigh in on what their relationship to Caesar and his government should look like. And the reason they ask this question is because the stakes are high and they know that the issue is volatile. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians already had an answer to this question. Like, you've got to understand, they're not coming to Jesus because they don't know, they legitimately don't know how to handle this situation, and they're like the good student in class who's raising his hand and offering the question because they want the teacher to help them think and learn how to think. They're more like the other student in class who always comes and is asking the question not to get more out of the teacher, but in order to just sort of stir up trouble and prolong the teaching and divert the teacher and all these sorts of things. Because they already have an answer to this question. They've got an opinion solidified on what they should do in regard to taxes to Caesar. And that's because the Pharisees, when you think about who they were, they were nationalistic Jews who represented a narrow view, an orthodox view of Judaism. They were the right-wing conservatives of the day. And in their operation of daily life, they generally represented resistance to Rome and its tax system. But on the other hand, what you had were these people who were called the Herodians, And the reason why these group of Jews were called Herodians is because they were pro-Rome. They represented those people who looked at Herod, who was the puppet king of Rome. Rome came in, overthrew, and said, you guys, Israel, you're going to be under our subjection. We're going to put the guy we want in charge in charge. That guy was Herod. And what you have are these Jews who came along and said, baby, we love Rome. We love Herod. We love everything that is going on in this situation. And for them, they would have been considered more the left-wing liberals who represented accommodation and acceptance of the ways of Rome and especially the tax system. So think about it. Here what you have are two groups of people who couldn't possibly be more diverse from each other, diametrically opposed to one another, yet here they stand cemented together by their mutual hatred for Jesus. Because if they, they know this, that if Jesus were to say, yes, what you need to do right now is pay your taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees could herald Jesus as a traitor. They're over here saying, we shouldn't be ones paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus says, pay taxes to Caesar. So what they could do is look at the crowd and say, look, we knew he was a traitor the whole time. This pro-Roman rabbi, we need to get rid of him. But they also know that if Jesus were to say, no, do not pay taxes to Caesar, then guess what the Herodians could do? They could immediately look at Jesus and go, this guy's guilty of treason. Look at how he's against 
Caesar. Look how he's against Rome. Look how he's a rebel, a rebel that deserves to be snuffed out because he's stirring up trouble. Either way, yes, pay taxes. No, pay taxes. In their mind, Jesus was a dead man. But notice that Jesus circumvents their trap with a wise response. Because in all their scheming, To destroy Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians had failed to see one principal truth, and it's this, that disciples are dual citizens with a primary allegiance. Disciples are dual citizens with a primary allegiance. You see, Jesus was fully aware of the hypocrisy of of these two groups. Mark says as much there in verse 15. Which is why he asked them, why put me to the test? Phenomenal question. The word behind, the Greek word behind the word test there shows up three other times beyond this. And you start tracking backwards towards the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the previous two times are referring to the religious leaders who are trying to put Jesus to the test. The first time you see the word is in Mark chapter 1 verse 13 where Jesus is out in the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and ultimately tries to put him to the test. And so I think what Mark is doing is he's signaling something for us here. The motivation of the heart of these men in trying to trap Jesus is ultimately demonic. They're trying to trip him up in order to destroy him. And so Jesus says, I need you to bring me a denarius. I want to look at it. These men are motivated by malicious intent, but it's not going to stop Jesus the king of kings, from displaying his authority and displaying his wisdom. So Jesus asked for the coin, and guess what? They brought him one. And as Jesus holds up the coin to them, he asks a question. Do you see it there? Verse 16. Whose likeness or whose image, whose inscription is sitting here on this coin? And the crowd says, it's Caesar's. Because that's because at that time, this denarius was a small silver coin. And the Caesar that was reigning over Rome at that time was a man named Tiberius Caesar. And on this denarius, on this coin, was the image of Caesar that had this inscription on it, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And so when Jesus holds up that coin and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say Caesar's, they're exactly right. And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to make a simple yet profound point. He's basically saying this, listen guys, since this coin has Caesar's image on it, it belongs to him. Therefore, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, this is a display of wisdom on the part of Jesus, just flat-out wisdom on his part. And if this was all that Jesus had said, it would be amazing. But remember, Jesus doesn't stop there. He looks at them when they tell him that Caesar's image is stamped on this coin, and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but then he also further says, and you need to render to God the things that are God's. 
In other words, what he's saying is that a coin created by Caesar, stamped with an image of Caesar, belongs to Caesar. So give to him what rightfully is owed to him. But as Jesus looks upon the crowd, it's as though he sees another coin in the faces of the people, a coin that is bearing a different image. He sees a mass of humanity who are all stamped with the image of God. And because they are people created by God, stamped with the image of God, they belong to God, therefore they are to give to God what rightfully belongs to him. Total, full, devoted worship. Worship doesn't belong to Caesar. Taxes are owed to Caesar. Worship belongs to God. Render to God what belongs to God. Now what I love about verse 17 is that the moment Jesus utters this statement, it was instantly astounding. Whenever he says, folks, you need to give to Caesar what belongs to him, but ultimately you need to give to God what belongs to him. And it was not only astounding in its wisdom, but it's equally astounding in the way that it calls us to rightly prioritize our allegiances in this world. People are in this world, things in this world, groups in this world are constantly calling for our allegiance. Friends, work, money, power, groups, politics, sports, insert whatever you want in the blank. There's something about that thing in this world that is constantly saying, hey, come and bow down to us. Come, give of yourself wholeheartedly, fully devoted to this thing. Come, give us your allegiance. Come, give us your allegiance. But what Jesus says here is that we need to rightly prioritize those allegiances. You see, when Jesus saves a sinner by grace through faith, we call this the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. That's just what the word gospel means. Gospel just simply means good news. So when a Christian talks about the gospel, they are talking about the good news that Jesus is a great Savior who saves great sinners. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that sinners not only find forgiveness for their sin in Christ, but we also see in the Bible that they also find everything they need for life and godliness in Christ. So the gospel is good news for salvation, and the gospel is good news for how we are meant to think about and process how we relate to the world around us. So if you are here this morning and you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus as your only hope of salvation, then what you can stand up and say is this, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has saved me. And if Jesus has saved you, then this means something for the way that we are to think and to feel and to choose as a disciple who has a dual citizenship. So do you see the connection of what's going on here? To stand up and say that Jesus has saved me, Jesus is Lord, I am now in a right relationship with God the Father. What we're doing is declaring this vertical relationship with God has been restored, not because of anything I have done, but because of everything that Christ has done through his death, through his resurrection, 
And so now what we're going to do is say, because this vertical reality is true, Jesus has saved me, we're going to then look out into the horizontal planes of life and go, this means something for the way I live. What does it mean? What does it mean? Since Jesus has saved me, what does this mean for my earthly allegiances? And the answer is, it means a lot means a lot. As a follower of Jesus, we have legitimate responsibilities to the government as long as those obligations do not interfere with our ability to honor and worship God. Romans 13, Acts 4 and 5. It means we fight for the sanctity of life because God favors life, Psalm 139. It means we strive to eliminate poverty because God is for the well-being and nurture of humanity, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We push to end human trafficking because God is for the dignity and respect of innocent people. Genesis chapter 1, as men and women saved by Jesus, what this means is that we care about the environment because God is the creator of this world. We care about the fiscal viability of our nation because money is God's gift and we're called to steward it well. We care about the corruption and abuse of innocent children because Jesus, by his example, led the way in showing us how to love children. We have a care to fight against racism. We have a care to fight for the proper treatment of women because God hates the sin of partiality. And we have a care about the compassionate and equitable treatment of immigrants because God cares for the alien. He cares for the sojourner because these men, these women are created with equal dignity, value, and worth. See, the operating assumption for so many of us so often that we have to fight with is that my vertical allegiance to Christ sort of stops the moment that I walk outside the doors. But the reality is that as disciples, we do have an earthly allegiance. We find ourselves in a place geographically located with neighbors and work and issues in a country with the government and all these sorts of things. And the reality is because Jesus Christ has saved us, this means something for how I begin to think and interact with all these things. It just does. It does. So again, when Jesus looks at these Herodians, looks at these Pharisees and says, guys, you have to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's, Jesus is acknowledging the legitimacy of a disciple's earthly allegiance. I think that's what Jesus is doing there. He's not saying being my disciple means you tuck, tail, run, stick your head in the corner, and hopefully this whole world will fix itself. Jesus is the one sent by the Father in John 17 who turns around and sends us out. The sent one sends us out as sent ones to be witnesses in this world. And that means spheres of influence are meant to be invaded by people who are going, Jesus has saved me. This means something for this situation, this conversation, this relationship, this neighborhood, this issue. It just simply does. It just simply does. But notice this. That our legitimate earthly allegiance grounded in the gospel. Again, I'm not telling us to go out and just sort of be people who are divorcing ourselves from the gospel. My argument right now is that Jesus is saying the gospel informs our earthly allegiances. Hear that. 
The gospel informs our earthly allegiances, but what we have to remember is that our legitimate earthly allegiances grounded in the gospel do, does not mean that we render to Caesar the things that do not belong to him. Okay? Remember, we're to render to God the things that are God's. And so the question has, like I had to wrestle with this, man, I'm chewing on it. Hopefully you're sitting here going, what on earth am I supposed to render to God? I mean, Jesus says, you need to do this right now. Render to God what's God's. And hopefully you're going, what does that mean? Render what to God? What is to be rendered to God? Again, you can just open up your Bible and find tons of ways, but if you just want to subsume it down to a point, I think it means at least this, that what we are meant to render to God is mainly a life of worship fully devoted to him alone. See, Caesar's owes his taxes, but Caesar's not owed your worship. God alone is worthy of your worship. And the temptation for many of us is to go out into the world and go, I have legitimate earthly allegiances in this world. I'm going to give them due diligence as a result of who I am in the gospel. But then over time, we begin to lose sight of our kingdom citizenship and we begin to worship these things. We begin to worship our political party. We begin to worship our political opinions. We begin to worship our social justice causes. We begin to worship all these things. We begin to worship and bow down and devote ourselves more fully to these things, losing sight of who we are in Christ. As disciples, we are first and foremost heavenly citizens with a kingdom allegiance. We have to remember this. As disciples, we are first and foremost heavenly citizens with a kingdom allegiance. And so as I just said, this means our social justice issues don't deserve our worship. Are you to be involved in them? Yes. Are they worthy of your worship? No. Our country of origin doesn't deserve our worship. Our partisan leanings, our political opinions, and everything in between are not meant to receive our worship, contrary to what Facebook tells you. Rather, these things are meant to exist in their proper place. Again, Jesus isn't saying don't have a political opinion. Jesus isn't saying don't have a partisan leaning. Jesus isn't saying don't love the country from where you're from. Jesus isn't saying don't be involved in social justice issues. Jesus is just simply saying these things are to come in, an, in a distant second distant second to the all-important reality of living as a kingdom citizen who is fully devoted to the king. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Your kingdom citizenship as a disciple of the king is meant to impact the way you think about the earthly allegiances in your life. That's how you're meant to relate to the world. So it means when you have a political opinion and you want to go onto Facebook to tell the entire world about your political opinion, you have the freedom to go onto Facebook and tell the entire world about your political freedom. 
But my fear is that we so often go onto Facebook and what we do is we betray our kingdom citizenship by talking and presenting these things in certain ways that were if people were to just simply take a measure of who is the ultimate allegiance in our life by just the sole snapshot of our Facebook feed, people would go, that brother's earthly allegiance is X. And that's all that brother, that sister has, is earthly allegiance to X. I see no way, shape, or form that their kingdom citizenship, the allegiance to Christ, is informing the way that they're talking about these things. And I think Jesus is warning us against that, to strike that balance of, yes, go, have those earthly allegiances. It is right for you to be a witness in these spheres of influence, but go as those who are ultimately disciples with a kingdom allegiance because King Jesus has saved you. Let that be the overarching influence that pervades every avenue, every aspect, every sphere of life. Well, if you look down at the bottom of verse 17, notice there's one sentence there, and it's the response of the crowd. And what does it say? And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. With one simple truth, Jesus puts everything into proper perspective, as Jesus is so good at doing. And it causes the people to marvel at Jesus. And so the question becomes this, I think. Have you ever marveled at Jesus? Have you ever marveled at Jesus? Remember, this whole conversation came to a point when Jesus called for a coin stamped with the image of Caesar, only to then call those stamped with the image of God to give God their ultimate allegiance. And what's so great is that this man who is issuing this call, the Bible clearly tells us that he is no ordinary man. Jesus is the sovereign king. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. All triumph belongs to him. And one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, or to use the words of the Apostle Paul, Jesus is the, here's the word, image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Coin, stamped, image of Caesar. You and me, stamped with God, the image of God. Now we have Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. And when it all comes down to the end, the good news of this king is that men and women stamped with the image of God can come to a saving knowledge of God as they look to him who is the image of God for the forgiveness of sins. And so I just wonder, again, have you marveled at this king. Not the Facebook portrayal of king, of the king. Not your neighbor's portrayal of the king. Not your mom and dad's portrayal of the king. 
not what political parties try to do and to twist Jesus into their own image, that version of the king. I'm asking, have you marveled at this king? Him who is the image of the invisible God, marveled at who he is, marveled at what he came to do to give his life as a ransom for many. Have you marveled at this king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the way your word uh, can be utterly practical in the sense that it relates to just the world that we live in. Uh, But God, so often the times when the Bible just gets utterly practical, it also gets instantly invasive. And I know at least for me, just having to chew on these words this past week, it forced my hand to have to just sort of think through this issue of allegiances. And to have to question, do my earthly allegiances fall to, in, a, in a distant second place to who I am as a child of the king, someone who's been born again? And the reality is, I just had to say no into some areas of my life. And so, God, my hope is that this morning you will take this word and turn our eyes to him who is the image of God, that you would help us to see the good news of this king, that men and women stamped with the image of God can come to a saving knowledge of God as they look to Jesus, the image of God, for the forgiveness of sins. Turn our eyes to your Son, Jesus. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.